everyone wants to have control of their life, to make their own choices, decisions, and set goals that are meaningful and important to them. And students who are neurodivergent are no exception. Self-determined research indicates a host of positive quality of life outcomes for people who are neurodivergent, including better employment and independent living outcomes. Whether your students want to attend college or obtain employment after high school, they will need to acquire the skills necessary to pursue career life directions that are personally meaningful and are of their own volition. The self-determination course offered by CBI is an ideal tool for teachers to help students develop the essential competencies for self-determined behavior. The course consists of five modules with comprehensive lesson plans that are, include embedded resources easily adapted for your diverse learners. Using the built-in self-reflection and assessment exercises, teachers can assess students' growth towards their self-determination and self-advocacy behaviors. If you're interested in learning more, check out the CBI Consultants webpage at www.cbiconsultants.com. Welcome to another episode of the Bear Sneak Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. On the podcast today, we have Melinda Crewblood Stimson. Welcome, Mel. Hi. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the Comox, Homoko, Klehus, and Common First Nations, who were one borderless traveling community, part of the Coast Salish territory before we colonizers came in and separated them into reserves. Yep, I'm on my ancestral lands of the Shawadasi Tula, but it's also Naida lands as well. Nice. Where, where is that? Ohio. Geographically. Ohio. Nice, nice, nice. Ohio, United States. Right on. Really cool. So, Mel, why don't you start by just, uh, you know, tell us, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, like you said, Melinda Trueblood Simpson's my legal name. Mm. I definitely prefer to go by Mel. So, professionally, I would say I'm a scientist, a consultant charity director, uh, public educator, and uh, I, I like to also call myself a professional disruptor <laughs> because I'm really focused on decolonizing everything, but especially science. Mm. And then of course, you know, I'm Roma, Native, Jewish, queer, two-spirit, uh, neurodivergent, uh, in white skin. So I think that's really important to mention, even though I don't identify as white, to know that we are in a racialized country where it matters. So mm-hmm. I'm in white skin here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right on. And uh, what's your, what, what area are you working? So right now I mostly work in ethology. So animal behavior. We mm-hmm. do a lot, bring a lot of different components from, you know, biology, zoology, behavior analysis, psychology. <laughs> So a lot of intersecting fields overlapping simultaneously. So often I can't tell which is which, but yeah, mostly with animals is what I say. But I'm also in mental health as well. I've never heard that term, ethology. I've heard of zoology is sort of, what's the difference? Ethology is just a study of animal behavior. Mm. And then zoology, oh gosh, I'd have to Google. (laughs) 
Is it just more of a study of animals in general? Yeah, maybe? more of a study of animals. <laughs> you would think with the you know bachelor's degree in zoology, I could tell you up top of my head, but <laughs> I haven't looked it up in a long time. <laughs> yeah, no, I took I took zoology in U University. I think I got a D, so I, don't, I definitely can't tell you. Uh, <laughs> it sounded like a cool course in the beginning, but uh, it, it really blew my mind. Yeah, it's uh, hard. It's yeah. hard. <laughs> I can identify a ridiculous amount of plants and animals, fungi, <laughs> and not really marketable skills, but <laughs> I learned a lot. And and so, what's kind of your 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 training in in, in ethology? What 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 do you, what have you been doing there? Well, ethology, unfortunately, in the last decade, has sort of tanked a bit. Mm. Most fields of science progress; they grow. Uh, you know, they they develop into full on studies on their own, but ethology has not been so lucky, unfortunately. Mm. So I was the last graduating class of my university at the Ohio State University, which is a huge school. Mm. Pretty much the entire state of Ohio is really Ohio State University. <laughs> um, and my class, my graduating class for zoology was the last one to even have an ethology department. So we don't even have a department anymore, <laughs> but essentially that's where it started for me was at university and just loving the ethology courses. Mm. They were just so different than learning, you know, the Latin names of the animals, how to identify the animals, right. the indentation, all that boring, like biology stuff. It was just so much more fascinating to me. And I, I really love neuroscience and my big special interest right now is neurodecolonization. Mm. So I love that aspect that comes into ethology. Because you really can't talk about ethology without neuroscience. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, why is ethology fading away? What's what, what's happening? I mean, animals are still behaving. So Yeah, a lot of it's funding, uh, lack of interest. I know the first year I wanted to take the ethology courses, there are only three of them. So like the department yeah. had already been scaling back even when it was still around. There are only three courses. Granted, they were full year courses. So, you know, three years. Mm. But the first year I tried to enroll, they didn't offer it because only like three people signed up and you need like mm. a minimum of like 15 people. So it's hard to say. I think maybe sort of a lack of awareness about mm. ethology and how it is more specialized in zoology or biology or neuroscience and also lack of interest. And then, you know, again, funding, it's, it is not a profitable field at all. Most of the work I do is unpaid if that tells you anything. Mm. And uh, it is not, <laughs> it is not, it does not bode well under capitalism, sadly. So as you know, I'm, I'm, the, the field I'm in is behavior analysis. I mean, right. Get into that if we wanted to, but, um, uh, but uh, there, there are a lot of folks in my field and I don't know much about what they're doing that, that do animal behavior work. So, yeah. and they're continuing to do it and they're, there's, they're, they're in, they're apparently taking courses and so on and so forth. Um, now I haven't ever heard the phrase, the term ethology in, 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 in sort of, in sort of those, those sides. So is, that's a bummer. <laughs> is, is, is what they're doing different? Do you know? 
So I would say a behavior analysis, a behavior analysis that works with animal behavior, they're Mm. probably still doing ethology, but they don't have that formal academic training and field work behind them. So Mm. most of the ones that I'm familiar with are behavior analysis that we're working with kids and then wanting to add in animals. And I think it really does a disservice. I will try not to be too preachy on this, but I think the fact that ethology isn't the basis is very problematic. Mm. I think this is how we see a lot of use and aversive tools. Um, we see a lot of, I, I don't want to say it's science denialism, but it does seep in there a little bit for the behavior analysis field sometimes. And you see a lot of like cognitive dissonance. So I think not having that strong academic background in ethology first really is setting people up for failure and pets too. And well, animals in general, but overall, and no, it's just really not that different. Mm. I'd think, and again, I'm not one of them, but I'd think that it, That an animal, animal behaviorist or whatever they're called, um, you know, uh, would probably take take issue with being called science denial denialist. Uh, it just it seeps just... in there though. It's an <laughs> uncomfortable fact, but mm. uh, it's uncomfortable. But it does seep in there a little. Mm. It more so has to do with breed, evolution, evolutionary biology. Mm. A lot of that stuff seeps in there. So. And with adversives in particular, you see a lot of hardline operant conditioning without applying in neuroscience and ethology, without applying in some of those updates, which can be really dangerous. Mm. And besides, even if it's not dangerous, it can just be really frustrating to me as a scientist to see someone say, well, this is, you know, positive punishment. And it's like, that's not positive punishment. You know, like Mm. it's not positive punishment. Um, But it can sort of make them see, have tunnel vision almost. They really get a narrow view. And that's where I think a little bit of the science denialism slips in, unfortunately, Mm. Mm. but we're all, we're all prone to it. (laughs) You know, we're all, all sort of under those influences. You have to be mindful of our biases. Interesting. I'll definitely have to look more into that. I, I, again, I hadn't heard of ethology until, well, until I listened to the the, the other the, that other podcast that you did. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, you were digging deep into that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. What I'm going to have to ask the uh, the animal folks uh, what what's uh, what what's going on there. Um, With uh, the behavior folks that come from behavior analysis or ABA or or other psychology fields or offshoots, um, probably wouldn't like me calling them offshoots either, but, (laughs) you know, it's psychology, but it's not, it's in there, it's a branch, it's an umbrella. (laughs) So um, I think for the most part, as long as they have some sort of formal training and fieldwork component, they they do a great job, not knocking them at all, but Mm. I would say and dog training that's where there's a lot of science denialism and a mm. lot of pseudoscience mm. around so and again not trying to disparage anyone you can absolutely train a dog without any formal education mm-hmm. but for me being able to make ethology education accessible is really that strong foundation you need mm. 
So is ethology education available in any way now, as you say, if it's... Yeah, yeah, you know, there are some universities that are really bringing it back, Mm. especially with a lot of behavior and analysis folks that want to work with animals or want to incorporate animals. Mm. There's animal-assisted therapy, animal-assisted interventions. Yeah. There's so many people that want to do these things that we've sort of always been doing, but they want it to be more scientifically um accurate and they want it to be more reputable so there are a lot of folks really trying to resurrect ethology Mm. i haven't seen very many university programs that are standalone they're Mm -hmm. usually here if you're a psychology major you can take an ethology course so they're usually electives um haven't seen any strong standalones i know the university of washington has a certificate program Mm. it's a graduate certificate that's I think cool. they call it animal behavior, not ethology per se, but yeah. same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've seen a lot of certificate programs like that. So I've seen some really great things. And I have to give a shout out to the International Society for Neuroethology. Mm. That's uh, where we lead with neuroscience before the ethology, <laughs> basically. Mm. Yeah. Um, so they have really been the organization for me that has and diversifying the field, addressing the concerns of people not having access to higher education, all the mm. barriers of racism, the classes and ableism. They've been very strong supporters and boosting ethology around the entire world. That's awesome. Um, and so what do you mean by neuro decolonization? Like are we decolonizing the brain? Yeah, and everything we think of, of how we've studied the brain, how we approach neuroscience. Mm. Yeah, so it's a it's a little bit ethereal sounding neuro decolonization. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it kind of it kind of is a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's just the way the way we think, the way we perceive the world, the way we interpret the world. But it's also for me the parts that I really add like is how we've studied psychiatry, how we've done neuropsychiatry. Being in mental health for humans and animals, sort of. <laughs> so being in like both mental health sectors, right? I really do not like a lot of the ableism and just the lack of data. So I was really shocked to see how much we don't understand about depression. And I was like, surely depression, PTSD, these things should have the most scientific data. Yeah. The most like the strongest scientific consensus. And I was really shocked as just someone who deals with mental health issues to see that we don't have a lot of data. And I'm like, why do we only have three class of medications? You know, we have the MOAs, the SSRIs. Like, why do we only have such a limited amount of data here mm. on such a massive field? So that's really what got me into the neuro decolonization is because I wanted to focus on how. In the past, you know, the stereotypical trope of the white male doctors diagnosing women with hysteria because mm. they're they're never allowed to leave the house. It's like, they, you don't have hysteria. You need to go outside, right. <laughs> you know? So, like, that is what has been really fascinating for me for neurodecolonization is how we've approached the brain, how we've approached neuroscience by it being clouded by colonialism. Mm. And is that, this is the first time I've heard uh, that term. Is that something that a lot of people are working in? Uh, this, uh, I mean, decolonization seems to be something that, you know, folks are starting to focus on in more and more fields. 
Um, yeah. Uh, and it's good, great to see. Is, is, is this something that's, uh, you know, a bit of a movement or? It's so this is where me living in two different worlds comes into play a little bit. Hmm. When I'm in, you know, mainstream society, it's not common. But mm. when I'm in indigenous only spaces or like indigenous centered mm. spaces, it's so common. Right. I mentioned neurodecolonization to my relatives that only have like an eighth grade education level and they know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. <laughs> but then I go into some like academic settings and I've mentioned it and they look at me like I, you know, I'm, I have two heads, right? right. Like, they look at me like I'm just wild. And I'm like, I promise you, this is a real term. This is a real thing. And I learned it from Michael Yellowbird. Mm. And who's he? Michael Yellowbird. He is um, a neuroscientist. I don't know his formal training, but sure. he's an indigenous indigenous scientist that focuses right. on neurodecolonization. Ah, really cool. Really cool. I'll have to look at look. Yeah, him. he's where I got my start. I read something by him when I was like nineteen, and. I ironically read it because me and some of my other science nerd friends at the time were like, this is wild. This makes no sense. Neurodecolonization, like, what is this? And I'm like, this is cool. <laughs> like, this is so cool. What do you yeah. mean? <laughs> and so it's literally taken that long. You know, it's taken a decade or more before now I can say it. And people are like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Tell me more. But in the past, I say that people are like, um... What are your credentials again? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com slash shop. The first secret word is animal. Uh, the piece about your point about sort of how in indigenous communities, it's, you know, even folks with very little, you know, sort of formal... Yeah colonized education know this term makes a lot of sense to me yeah because just yesterday i did an interview with um uh, three uh indigenous school psychologists and uh really fascinating and, and they're and they, they were kind of talking about this in a similar way one of them her name is uh, uh, lisa gular and she's uh, mm. she's as far as she knows she's the only indigenous school psychology academic alive um, um like she's yeah. the first and only i believe that only one and uh you know and i think that's part of the reason why she brought the other two folks on because these were sort of uh, not sort of these were these are uh, were, were students of hers um or yeah. students that she worked with um and so try, try to add to sort of add to that uh, try to make get that number up to two or three um and uh and so it, it makes a lot of sense that you know sort of in in general academia where you just don't have yeah. indigenous or 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 and often black voices and others um that you wouldn't be having these conversations yeah i mean i'm first generation university in my family mm. um i've had some younger relatives try and university was just not for them mm. and you know i remember when i was younger you know, we really go big on high school graduation because for our family, that's huge. Mm. And I remember a friend at the time, this is, you know, when we were kids, so they're a wonderful person now, but they just didn't know better at the time. They were like, why does your family, your family so extra? It's just a high school graduation. Mm. And I was like, 
oh, you don't get it. You don't understand, do you? That for Black, Indigenous, Latino, like for a lot of people of color, a lot of poor people, just poor people, regardless of your race or ethnicity, that's a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, high school graduation is the sort of graduate school for, for white folks in terms of sort of, you know, yeah. not there's not an equivalent there, but in terms of, you know, being able to sort of have those achievements because of so many, you know, uh, so much oppression and whatnot that kind of prevented them yeah. from even kind of getting that far. And certainly with Indigenous folks, uh, we talked a lot about schooling yesterday and, you know, the residential boarding schools and whatnot and how that all really, um, yeah. you know, essentially kind of destroyed traditional education. And, you know, it was, and it was funny yeah. just saying how a lot of folks talk like prior to residential schools, Indigenous folks weren't educated. Um, which is an awesome colonizing type of phrase. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, just, you know, and, and we, we, hear, we hear this about Indigenous and Black folks that, you know, we just recent, uh, recently, oh, yeah. with, you know, in Florida with, uh, you know, DeSantis saying that, you know, slaves learn skills, um, the ins- yep. you know, and, uh, and, and that they wouldn't have had if they weren't slaves. Um, mm-hmm. um, and so this is sort of that... Uh, that, that, yeah, because they were taught, because they were gently, they gently went through an orientation, right? Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, they, they hit the ground running in the most literal, awful fashion. They hit the ground running. So, yeah, no, <laughs> that's always fascinating. And that really, again, puts me back to neurodecolonization, because how we've told the narrative of slavery has been biased significantly mm-hmm. by mostly white men. Yeah, 100%. One of the reasons I, I, one of the many reasons I kind of wanted to get you on the podcast was, um, uh, you know, I think related to your your many intersecting identities. Um, yeah. Um, um, uh, which, you know, I think some of them, even, well, all of them on their own are, you know, can can make it for a, a really interesting conversation. And, <laughs> uh, and also, you know, I think, you know, we could talk, we could talk about sort of, you know, oppression and discrimination and colonization in the context of each and every one of those. Um, but, oh, to com- yeah. but to combine them all together is, is you know, out there. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I know, I definitely know it's a lot too, because every time I have to fill out identity questionnaires <laughs> not that I'm not criticizing it but I'm just like god what are all my labels again yeah. I have to like make sure I'm like get everything I'm like is that everything <laughs> you know like oh, got a lot to list there's not enough space on this form yeah um, right <laughs> one in particular was um that that I was really interested in just learning more about was 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 the 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 Roma identity, and I'm wondering yeah. um, if you can just talk a little bit about kind of who the Roman Romani are. I think I, because I think I think we've there's been some really good conversation, um, you know, uh, in terms of I think there's been really good conversation in terms of some of these other identities, um, certainly around yeah. autistic oh, yeah. and neurodiversity, and 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 there's more conversation now around sort of um, you know in the, the, around sort of indigenous peoples, and I think people are starting to get a a better idea of 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 you know what what these communities really are are really all about. I mean, there's still a lot to learn. 
Um, but I, I feel like the, the the real money conversation is something that that just isn't had. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's think, really and, not. And and I feel like you know whether we're working with animals or whether we're working with, but certainly working with people, um, and we're you know and we're working with folks from from these different cultures. It, it's very easy to to uh, you know say the wrong thing and shoot some yeah. microaggressions <laughs> out there and and, uh, yeah. and, and and really be problematic and you know i mean there 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 you know there there are you know as you as you know there are sort of derogatory terms um you know ab about yep. that culture that are that are not considered derogatory by many many white folks they still don't really yep. make that connection in fact these words are still sort of used in in you know, in general language. And so it's not just white folks, even mm -hmm. in BIPOC or people of the global majority, whatever label you prefer, even in those spaces, I've had incidences of negative stereotypes. So yeah, yeah. it's kind of, you know, it's been said before that the Roma are one of the most hated ethnicities in the world, one of the most hated in Europe. I just did a presentation. I just pulled some survey results from 2020, which is the most recent I could find, mm. where the Roma and Muslim people throughout Europe are the most hated people. And we're beating out Black people, queer people, gay people. Like, and I'm like, wow, we, we're winning in the worst way possible, yeah, right. right? Like, this is the worst thing to be number one in. And mm -hmm. But here we are, number one. So, yeah, the Roma, of course, the pejorative is gypsy. And right. gypsy is a word I grew up with. I'm I'm one of those people that is not really offended by it. It's mm. just sort of been normalized for me. But then again, go back to neurodecolonization practice. And I think, ooh, has it become normalized because I heard it so much? Right. So, so I'm, I try to not use it, but if I accidentally use it, that's why is because it was, that's what my family used being that we were mixed, you know, we were, we were Scottish, we were native, we were Roma, we were Jewish. So a lot of the times gypsy was our umbrella term. It was the catch all term my dad would use to people when he'd introduce our family, you know, we're going to a new town. He's like, yes, we're gypsy. <laughs> so and it's hard because back in the 80s and 90s, 1980s and 1990s, it was kind of cool to be gypsy a little bit. And yeah. people were familiar with that word because, you know, Cher, uh, Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> so those that era. So people, when you said gypsy, they're like, oh, yeah, cool. No problem. Ha welcome to the neighborhood, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but like the moment they hear, you know to face man off say mel final show you know like they start hearing our language and they're like wait where are you from mm -hmm. are you from romania are you from hungary and a lot of times for my dad it was easier for him to just say yeah yeah romanian or yeah yeah greek <laughs> he would mm -hmm. always pick a different one every mm -hmm. town we would go mm -hmm. to whenever people would start questioning us he would always be like Oh yeah, we're Greek. And it was just so funny. Funny in a really sad way, of course. But I remember as a kid, him coming home, be like, hey, everyone, children, come around. I let all the new neighbors know we're from Greek. We're from Greece. <laughs> we're Greek. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I guess we're Greek this week, you know? <laughs> like depending <laughs> depending on the dynamics of the neighborhood we were in, you know, like it was if we were in a lot of Hispanic. Mexican dominant communities, we knew Spanish. So we mm -hmm. were able to say, you know, a lot of them assumed we were from Spain because we were so light skinned. So they're like, mm -hmm. oh, you're just from Spain. And we blended in really well like that. It, mm -hmm. It's unfortunate that, you know, my dad felt he had to do that. But yeah. 
that's kind of the way it was back then. Was it just sorry? Sort of, I think I strayed from the question. No, no, no. And 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 as far as you know, you know, and, and this is sort of me, you know, even hesitating here to, to even use the word. So I'll just I'll I'll just call it the G word. Um, yep. <laughs> what 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 is what what is what's the origin of that term? And 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 what does that mean? And, and why would it be offensive? Yeah. So the origin, the actual origin of the word, there's at least three different arguments right now. In my opinion, I feel the origin of the word has a lot to do with anti-Blackness because Hmm. when our people left India, our diaspora started in India, a lot of the reasons that we were pushed out of India is because in Northern India, there were lighter-skinned people that were at the time back in, you know, 11th through 13th centuries here is what we're talking Hmm. when our diaspora started lighter skin was being favored and we gypsies the roma we were darker skin so india was like you know this doesn't work for our caste we're going to keep you in the lowest caste possible Mm. and we're like we're not going to adhere to a caste system what's wrong with you we don't (laughs) do that in gypsy culture absolutely not Mm. so so we had to leave india Mm. and that's you know we started moving throughout the world and uh so starts in india a lot of it has to do with anti-blackness, in my opinion. And then when we got to Europe, I don't know precisely when this happened, mm-hmm. but people assumed because in northern India, we were light skinned, but in Europe, we were dark skinned, mm-hmm. we were too dark. And so people assumed we were Egyptians. So mm-hmm. and how it became a slur is I wouldn't say it originated as a slur. But it evolved into a slur. A lot of that has to do with World War II, of course, mm. and the Holocaust, which we call Poramos in our language. So that's where it really became a slur uh, for me, in my opinion. Some people would argue it came a slur earlier than that. It really depends what region of the world we're talking. But for me, globally, when the term really became unacceptable and this is the history that i use for my relatives that are very resistant to use roma um i i remind them of this history zigorner was a german word for gypsy it was a direct translation of gypsy zigorner zigon uh and those things spread throughout all different countries all different languages so zigon i think it's hungarian it all means gypsy so World War II, I would say, is when it really became a slur. It wasn't great. It was never a great term. It was always a misidentifier, right? We weren't from Egypt. We were from India. But mm. some of us did go to Egypt. But it wasn't great to begin with. But it really became the pejorative for World War II. And so, sorry, that's because of the way sort of the Germans were were were, were, were using the word? or Yeah, so... When it comes to the tattoos on your arms for Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, they would have a different letter. So our letter before our numbers would be a Z for Zigorner, Gypsy. Uh... Yeah. So that's where it really became a label that was used. And the label Gypsy was used to target all different types of people. It wasn't just the Roma ethnicity that the, the fascists targeted with Gypsy. People that were just eccentric people that were musicians people that were dancers you know if you just had a certain occupation that seemed to roma they would just slap gypsy label on you there's Mm. a gorner for german but yeah they would just slap that on you (laughs) so even people that you know weren't of our ethnicity were targeted with the use of the word gypsy Mm. wow 
And so you mentioned Holocaust. So I think for most folks um, like myself who are maybe somewhat uninformed um, and just sort of know sort of the, the, the world sort of Western view of kind of what the Holocaust was about and, um, um, you know, the sort of Hitler and the Aryans and all that kind of thing and, 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 and wiping out the Jews. Um, where does, where do those, does Roma kind of fit into all this? And, and why were, and why were, why were you also getting sort of, well, not sort of getting taken out by, by the Germans? Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's like million dollar question why you know mm-hmm. like why I'm, I think everyone has a different hypothesis and i'm yeah. by no means a scholar on, sure, on the holocaust sure. but but for us i think the last the last number i saw um was 70 percent 70 percent of europe's roma population were killed in the holocaust wow. so you know that, that's that's a huge number and the last time i saw some data it was a few years ago so globally on a global scale it was one fourth so so 25 percent of the roma were killed during the holocaust so yeah i think (laughs) why we were targeted um probably because in my opinion we really embody decolonial praxis Mm. (laughs) like even if you don't know the word the way we live and you know we're not a monolith. There's so many different Roma groups. We have over 120 different dialects just for our language. Mm. If that tells you how much diversity there is in Roma mm-hmm, groups, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but overall, for the most part, I think it's because we don't like authority and we don't like injustice. We want everyone treated fairly, mm. and that may look different in your specific family, your specific tribe or clan, sure. But for the most part, from what I've noticed, is that. We have a really strong sense of justice and equality and equity <laughs> and mm. equality kind of worked in some regions. But when it came to equity, that was that did not work for a lot of Europeans. So I think that's what really set us aside, in my opinion. Mm, mm, mm. The and, constant yeah. pushing against the system and disrupting the status quo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. That makes a lot of kind of kind of the earliest of social justice advocates. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned as one of your identities is being Jewish. Is, is there is there a connection between sort of Judaism and being and being Roma? Definitely all the time in World War II, we spent being targeted for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us we perished alongside one another. A lot of our families lived together. Mm-hmm. A lot of Jewish communities throughout Europe that were not accepted as Europeans, but not necessarily hated either. They had a role, whether mm. it was, you know, through food or crafting or something like that. So a lot of those communities, we sort of hid in mm. <laughs> almost or were around because those were the one safe areas for us. Gotcha. We couldn't just go live on the main street of the town. We had to live on the outskirts of someone's country home, basically, you know, and being that we like to move a lot, we didn't like having permanent structures. So camping was another thing that really made us stand out. (laughs) We always wanted to be outdoors and moving and be with the land. So, so that really helped us (laughs) stand out, but it also made a lot of Jewish communities and 
not just Jewish, but marginalized communities in general in Europe be more receptive to us. Mm, gotcha. And then so sort of through that sort of connection, some some of you sort of took on the religion as well? Is that Yeah, of- yeah, yeah. The Roma come in all different religions. We have our own Roma belief system, if you will. Mm, we have mm. our own set of belief systems that are specific to being Roma. Has right. a lot to do with balance of good and evil, things like that, clean, mm. unclean. But in addition to that philosophy, which is more, I guess, if you want to get pedantic, you could call that a religion. But right. I would just call it um, guidelines to harmonious living. I like that. <laughs> it's what I would call it because I don't like the word rules. Yeah. <laughs> but but I would call it more like guidelines to having a, a happy life. And then the religion aspects so there are romas that are muslim there are some that are religiously jewish there's a lot Mm. that are christian catholic uh there's plenty that are hindu buddhist so your religion can vary for my family religion wise we have a lot of christianity a lot of judaism and a lot of hinduism Mm. so i don't really know how all of those influences came about in my family other than my my mom's mom was Jewish. She was very proud to be Jewish. And growing up, I remember my dad being really weird about it and didn't really like us going around her. And unfortunately, I never really got to unpack that with him because we had a bunch of other stuff to unpack sure, before sure, he passed sure. away. Right. <laughs> a lot of, of other intergenerational trauma, right? Yeah, yeah. So I never got to unpack why he didn't like my grandmother. But he also didn't like my aunt, who is very loud and proud to be Roma and Jewish. So I was like, you know, don't know what that was about. I don't know if it was anti-Semitism or if it was um, a weird sort of thing that happened with Roma erasure in the Holocaust. There were some Jewish and non-Jewish academics studying the Holocaust that did not want the Roma talked about for the longest time did not want us included, did not want our numbers included at all. And there's a lot of people that made Holocaust museums that were in leadership positions. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to name his name because he's a very famous author, a very famous Holocaust author that Hmm. everyone loves the quote, but he was one of the very vocal Jewish leaders in Holocaust research that refused to include the Roma. So he had prejudice against gypsies. So it's like, there's a lot of nuance going on and how we overlapped. And then because of our overlapping, it came a weird oppression Olympics almost, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And I, I imagine, you know, the sort of traveler nature too, you know, yeah. is, 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 is a part of the reason why, you know, the Roma could be associated with so many different groups because you're kind of right. going from place to place interacting. You talked about being being originated from india yep um but then you know moved out for those reasons it was was it sort of a lack of acceptability uh, of your people that made you nomadic or because like what or like why didn't you just move yeah. to somewhere else and stay there 
Right. Yeah. You know, that's a really contentious topic in the mm. Roma community. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair. Very contentious. So uh, I'm going to try to choose my words carefully, but yeah. just disclaimer, my opinion. You know, Understood. just one yeah. just one Roma person. Yeah. <laughs> you got to talk to more than one. But yeah. uh, for me, being nomadic in my family was 50% choice, 50% not a choice. So for me and my family, it started because when people in the neighborhood started finding out our identity, finding out how different ritual things we would do, like my grandmother would literally be outside every time it rained, showering, nude. <laughs> so, so like little quirks like that, you know, really made us stand out in the neighborhood. We would then eventually have to move because it become unsafe to be there. Mm. So, but I feel like a lot of my older relatives, many of which aren't here with us today, if I could talk to them, I think a lot of it would, a lot of them would say they enjoyed moving. They didn't mm. like to settle down, that mm. they had wanderlust. You know, they wouldn't mm -hmm. use the word wanderlust, of course, but like they wanted to keep moving. Um. I would they definitely tell you my grandmother would say being nomadic was not a choice. It was forced because mm. she was where I get most of my gardening knowledge from. Mm. She very much loved having her farm and just being on her farm and not yeah. going anywhere. <laughs> so so I think it varies. Definitely varies. But, but for me. I'm just wondering what Sorry, about sort of, no, well, I'm wondering about sort of more historically too, like sort of over over in in europe and whatnot why there was a yeah. lot of movement over there yeah definitely depends on what time period you're looking at gotcha. so i guess since it's it's you know still topical with the ukrainian war i used that example hmm. before there are a roma group that left india and ended up in what we call ukraine today okay they stayed they hmm. settled in ukraine they stayed Mm. There's a Ukrainian headscarf that was floating around a lot when the war broke out in solidarity with Ukraine. And I'm like, that's a diklo. That is a diklo. That is our Roma diklo. We gave that pattern to them. We gave mm. that floral pattern to them. Neat. But everyone, I forget the Ukrainian word for it. But everyone's like, you know, this is a Ukrainian headscarf. I'm like, no, that's a diklo. <laughs> and it started some unfortunate arguments. And I'm like, this is a diklo. Why are they calling this Ukrainian? Because the Roma that came to Ukraine, settled there, stayed, mm. never left Ukraine, are still right. in Ukraine today. A lot of them don't go by Roma, they go by Lomari, but the Lom, L-O-M. So mm. they stayed there and settled and integrated into Ukrainian culture so much that we see their influences in Ukrainian culture still today. I so see. some people did stop. Some people did settle down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I can totally actually. Actually, before I say that, I, I'm I'm curious where. So I could see that Roma Jewish connection. Um, obviously, uh, being autistic is kind of its own thing. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, yeah, the. Uh, but where where for you does the the does does the indigenous identity come from? Yeah, native. Um, normally, I just call myself indigenous instead of saying Roma, native, mm. Jewish. Mm. But I know that's also a contentious <laughs> umbrella yep. term. But uh, so native, Native American to be yep. really specific here. Sure. Again, that sort of comes into my family's oral history of when we came here to what we call the United States now. 
the only places that were safe for us again had to do a lot with native encampments Mm, they were the only ones that were not only living in a similar fashion to us with the connection to the land and wanting to be outdoors but they also had similar principles and philosophies as a lot of roma and again they were just safer for us to live near them than it Mm. was to live near the colonies basically the you know colonial centers of town because that way of life is a lot of you know stone stone buildings it's very permanent and Mm -hmm. for my family history my family did not like that permanent they wanted the flexibility to be able to move Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially with the seasons my family are big seasonal movers so so was it then that roma roma's i i screwed this up a lot when i was having a conversation with um <laughs> a few a few different Arab right. fo- Arab folks um where I kept confusing Arab and Arabic. I, u- I was using the language wrong. Yeah. Roma, Romani. How do, how do I use those words? So I normally just use Roma. Romani is the adjective. So we're talking about the we would say the Roma people, but if we're talking about our music, we'd say Romani music. Gotcha. So that's how that works. But it's it's flexible it's fluid it really depends on <laughs> what type of roma you are honestly yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it yeah. does get interchanged a lot so it's perfectly fine so for the roma people you know when 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 you came over to this side of the world and you were kind of yeah. hanging out with indigenous folks and probably getting along and they probably were appreciating that uh you weren't there to take over. You just wanted to hang exactly um, yeah um, trading we, was a big component too for sure were, we had similar beading, similar okay. basket weaving, similar oh, different things like that. Yeah. Really cool. And so were was there a point then where your ancestors were then adopted into these tribes? Is that sort of how you... Yeah. Yeah. From what I can tell, the oral history is that we sort of always had been together. We always, you know... <laughs> we always were in relationships with one another and making our families. But the documents I've seen, I actually found one document, unfortunately, and I talked to some other Native scholars on this, but there is one document that shows that one of my ancestors was actually, uh, I don't want to say enslaved, but we're not really sure if it was enslavement or indentured servitude. We're not really sure mm. of what the specifics were. But it definitely appears that the, the Cherokee in the area at the time in Appalachia enslaved or <laughs> had some of my ancestors forcibly. So mm. that also happened, unfortunately. Mm. And, mm. We, and we know we know this happened. This is not, you know, a secret in the Native community. Native community has always done a great job at communicating this. But we know with the Freedmen lines, we know there were people in native communities that were enslaved or indentured servitude that were black roma portuguese you know they're all different types Mm. unfortunately so it's a weird dichotomy of like for me it's like i'm indigenous but there's also part of me that's also a settler you know like it's a little Mm -hmm. bit of both Mm -hmm. and and i know and i know this is probably a touchy subject too uh, cause there's, there's a lot of conversation mm-hmm. right now in, in my neck of the woods, um, around, um, and I know this isn't the same thing, but around white folks who are 
sort of co-opting indigenous identities, uh, the pretendian movement, as yeah. it's called, um, and uh, identifying as being, you know, indigenous when, you know, for and, and then accepting and then accepting awards yeah. or 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 benefits, you know, as a result and so on, and uh, you know, honorary degrees from the whole nine yards, um, right, um, and then learning as as people are getting more and more access to records that there was no connection from your family yeah. to to you know these indigenous communities is 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 there for 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 the roma is is there is there any of that or or or, or yeah you, yeah yeah there is there is a lot of gatekeeping lateral violence for sure um and maybe just a side note here, but I have the reverse. So when I was growing up, I thought my family was exaggerating that we were native because mm. a lot of Appalachia, it's like your chair here, taco, you know, or Shawnee or whatever. So I thought for the longest time that my family was exaggerating it. So I focus really on being Roma and yeah, my grandma's Jewish, you know, like yeah, yeah my grandma and my mom were Jewish, but yeah. <laughs> so, um, so Roma was like core focus of my identity. It still definitely yeah. is to this day is my, yeah. definitely my primary focus, sure. but, but then I learned later in life, you know, that, oh my gosh, they weren't exaggerating. Like we really did share encampments. We really did live on this land. I have met extended family that still live on Rosebud Reservation out in South Dakota. So I'm still piecing together what, how my family got so far west. Mm. But from what I can find so far, the fact that there's still family of ours in the Dakotas and in Oregon and Washington state, how they got so far west has a lot to do with, you know, a trail of tears and oppression and being lumped in. We were either called mulatto or there's a new mm. term melungeon now that they mm. we have so we were not white essentially or mm -hmm. not white enough mm. <laughs> we looked white but we weren't white enough so and then of course there are tons of stories of roma people that you know have been here since the early 1500s passing as white and some of those families have lost their roma identity and I have a lot of empathy for that because I've seen a lot of really good-hearted people that have learned that their great-great-whatever-was-Roma or Gypsy. Normally, they want to reconnect in a good way. They want to, you know, do the work. They don't want to be a cultural appropriator or culture vulture mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or whatever, you know what I mean? Like all the other slurs of the derogatory terms we have. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't want to be that. But because they just say I'm reconnecting, they get labeled as that. And I've obviously we've all seen the Rachel Dolezals and the people in very high positions of power and that have wealth and a lot of privilege lying. That hurts for sure. But I've also seen the other side of this where people that are truly trying to reconnect, whether it's to their Roma identity, their Jewish identity, their native identity or Latino or what have you, I've seen a lot of people try to reconnect immediately get shunned. And, mm. you know, there's a lot of opinions, but I just feel like that's not the way. I feel like using the colonizers tools on one another is not how we get solidarity and unity at all. Mm, mm, <laughs> so mm. I have a lot of very strong opinions about pretendian or our Roma version is Fomani or Didikai, if you want to use the Romanesque. But yeah, we have that for sure in the Roma community, but I have a lot of strong feelings on it. I guess the summary is I really hate it. I think mm. I think we have to be very careful when safeguarding 
becomes gatekeeping. Mm. And the line between safeguarding and gatekeeping, I can't, I don't know. I really yeah. don't know what that line is. I every day am questioning what that line is. Even in my own, my own decolonial journey of decolonizing my mind, sometimes I find myself being a bit of a cop, like being a bit of a police officer and policing others' identities. Mm. And I've had to work on that myself. Wow. Like, wow, that's that's not that's not the way to think of someone you just met. <laughs> just because they said they're reconnecting, uh, you can't immediately think they're lying. Like, what's wrong with you? Mm. <laughs> but even in myself, I've had that. Well, and it just speaks to a term I've been hearing more and more in these decolonization, anti-racism conversations around it and its nuance um, mm -hmm. and, and just how oh, yeah. it's so easy to sort of make broad stroke sweeps on yeah. either side of the on either side of the Oh, argument. yeah. I mean, I'm sure you'll, you'll get someone that loves everything I, I've said today, but I'm sure you'll also get someone that hates everything I just said. <laughs> so like it's it's diverse. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, even 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 sort of the term indigenous is 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 yep. uh, you know is in a lot of circles a colonial term because we're yeah. essentially. Um, I mean, it's it, it's better than some other terms, but it, we're we're essentially lumping folks into one broad category. And I I, I think yep. the I think when I had the guests on yesterday, they said there was something like five hundred and eighty seven tribes of indigenous folks um, just that's and that number is only federally recognized tribes in north america mm. that's not even including central america south america or any other tribes or clans or bands uh around the world so that's not even that's that's really only canada and united states and again right. you know most people wouldn't like me calling it canada and the united states yeah. but it's really only the half turtle of, island turtle yeah. of turtle island right. yeah it's like the top half of the turtle right, right. That, that that number is for and that's federally recognized yeah, so yeah. if we're over 500 just for federally recognized just imagine all the ones that you know aren't federally recognized or there's not even a system in place so in most of europe and australia and honestly, I would say most of the African continent uh, as well, there aren't really government structures to even identify Roma. So, mm. <laughs> so there aren't even structures. We're fighting right now as a Roma people to be considered a nation, to be considered the Roma nation, to be mm -hmm. considered a global nation. Mm -hmm. So like we don't even have, I can't just go to you know the United Nations and be like, I'm Roma. What form do I fill out to be recognized as Roma? Like we don't even have those structures yet. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And and yeah, definitely the North America sort of context for yeah. that for that. Number. Yeah, like I can't go to my State Department or you know or the federal government here and be like, I'm Roma. This is my tribe. Sign me up. I can't even mm -hmm. do that. Like mm -hmm. it's not even a thing for us yet. And. And it's even further from that. You you mentioned uh, when we were talking before we hit record the other day, um, was more the other day, the other month ago, <laughs> um, um, about the second word is ethology. Kind of the, not kind of the, sort of the efforts to essentially erase the Roma in the UK. What, what What's happening in the UK? Yep. The UK, 
is a tricky one. And again, a lot of people will hate me talking about it since I don't live in the UK. Mm-hmm. But I have family there. So I, I do. I promise you I have a connection. I was just yeah. in Northern Scotland with my family. I promise. <laughs> um, so so what's going on there is we have the Roma, but we have traveler ethnicity, which is their whole own ethnicity. Yeah. I call them a cousin to the Roma. Mm. um very different ethnicities though two different ethnicities however the way we live there's a lot of similarities and overlap and then you have the term gypsy over there which is kind of an umbrella term Mm -hmm. kind of a Mm catch-all so there are boaters people that live their life on boats showmen people that live their life as an occupation of being in performing arts there's a lot of different groups like that that get labeled with gypsy And some of them, it's their own doing. So some of them want to be called gypsy. Some of them just get called gypsy in a negative way, and then they Mm. embrace it. Mm. So the UK is really tricky. The UK is the the one place where over here in the US, when I say, I tell someone, especially in mostly white spaces, hey, gypsy's a slur, please don't use that. Like, please don't say gyp to me. That's very rude. (laughs) Um, Please do not say that to me. Do you know the origin of that? A lot of the times those people are like, but in the United Kingdom, they've reclaimed the word gypsy and they want to be identified as gypsy. And I'm like, Mm. okay, well, is this the United Kingdom? (laughs) Is usually my response. I'm like, okay, well, we don't live in the United Kingdom. You have a Roma person in front of you telling you that that word is harmful and especially gypped. That is very harmful verb to use. Please don't use it. Mm -hmm. So, so it sucks because it's, it's not really the people's fault that want to identify as gypsy, but it's also still not a good thing for gypsy to be so normalized either. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned though that there were actually some sort of laws in the UK that are kind of... Yeah, so we fought pretty hard together. Roma and Traveler People in Solidarity fought very hard to sort of block a lot of these but they they got passed and one of them is uh it's called the i think it's called the anti-stopping bill if you google that you should be able to find it mm-hmm. but essentially what it means is that the roma and traveler people and then a lot of people that get you know labeled the g word over mm-hmm. in the uk they move and a lot of this is tradition for them Mm-hmm. So they live out of their vehicles or they live out of traditional wagons, Vardos. There's a huge resurrection of our Vardos, mm. um, which are our handmade wooden wagons that we live right. out of. And the, the people are moving a lot because of how they acquire food, how they interact with the land. But some of them just move because they want different change of scenery. Like they just mm-hmm. want to be mobile. But if you are a Roma or traveler ethnicity, you can be stopped by the police. If you're just on the side of the road changing your tire, you can get stopped and arrested and put in jail because they don't want Roma and traveler people doing that. But Mm. if you're a wealthy person with your RV and your RV gets a flat, you're fine. The police won't arrest you. But if if you look, if there's anything about you that appears Roma or traveler, And over there in the UK, it's weird because here, unless I tell you, a lot of people assume I'm just a a white woman, right? Mm -hmm. Unless I tell you I'm queer, native, like a lot of people just assume white woman when you see me passing on on the street. But over there, they they know I'm gypsy. It's very weird. I Hmm. don't racialization works very different in the UK. Weird. And that's something that I still haven't really figured out. 
But yeah, it's just, it seems just our dark hair. And my brother Mm. was educating me a lot who lives in Northern Scotland about, he also thinks it's our dark hair, our dark features. The fact that we're so pale, but then have the dark hair, the curly hair, (laughs) um, that that's what makes us stick out. But I'm sure there's a lot of different hypotheses on that. But yeah, Mm. racialization over there works very differently. So, so they, they know the police are pretty good at knowing who is on the side of the road stopped because they're Roma or Traveler versus not, <laughs> versus um, not Roma or Traveler. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, one, one more identity to add to the, to the bunch. Um, how long have you known you were, you were neurodiverse? So I got diagnosed with ADHD when I was a kid, mm. having a lot of issues in school. And it always felt like a weird diagnosis, you know. I yeah. mean, I'm very privileged, very grateful that I had access to a doctor to get that as a child right. that was, you know, really, really helpful for my mom, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but my mom tried a lot of different medications and just really didn't like what she was seeing. It took me from a happy kid to a very morose (laughs) kid to a very like depressed kid almost. Um, Mm. So my mom didn't really like any of the medications and that worked pretty well through high school. I did pretty well, but it all came crumbling down my freshman year of university. That's when I was like, wow, I really need to get help from ADHD. And so I went to the student health center. It took a while, several months to connect me with a free psychologist to do evaluations and everything because I couldn't afford all that, you know, mm. thousands of dollars of a lot of time to get those diagnoses. So, and I eventually got the diagnosis of autism when I was in undergrad. And it really was something that it's very hard for me to be proudly autistic still to this day. Mm. And they can probably hear it in my voice. It's it's because in my family, it it wasn't necessarily seen as a negative thing, but I have a lot of autistic folks in my family. It, hmm. it wasn't really a good thing either. It was kind of a weird neutral that no one really wanted to talk about. Hmm. So, so it's I still have a lot of stuff to unpack with that. But yeah, I, I've known for quite a while now. So at least at least ten years that I've known that I was autistic. I'm curious, sort of, and, and I mean, you've talked already a little bit about kind of sort of the ambivalence to accept in in, in your own family. Uh, Do you know much about sort of perceptions of disability and or neurodiversity in Roma culture in general? I know that's probably Roma culture in general is written that really (laughs) phrase, but um, yeah. yeah. (laughs) No, it's fine. Um, Yeah, the, so I have really mixed feelings on this because like growing up, my grandparents, we always had people in our family that had what you would call an intellectual disability Mm. or had some sort of disability, whether they were missing an arm um, Mm. or they were blind. You know, like my uncle was partially blind and had a glass eye Mm. that he loved to pop out all the time and show small children (laughs) so like so like disability was really normalized you know my one of my brothers we call him stubby 
because he's missing a toe. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, we never really use his real name. You know, we call right. him Stubby, right? Uh, and it's just like Jughead. We called him Jughead. I don't, I still can't tell you my uncle Jughead's real name. Awesome. I want to say it was, I think it was Tom, <laughs> but like we called him Jughead because he had a skull deformity. So, uh, <laughs> so oh like disability, I know, like disability was really embraced in my family without making it different. They were yeah. just a part of, they were just our relatives. Yeah. But then, you know, there's another half of my family where in Romanesque and some of their languages that are in my family this disabled or neurodivergent the trans the rough translation would mean from the devil <laughs> so mm. the rough translation of romanesque for autistic is basically being possessed and that's not great that's really negative of course mm. so mm. i try to i try to mention that but i also try to make sure people know that just because our language is like that doesn't mean how you're treated will be like that Mm, yeah if that makes sense no 100 percent does um it just i don't i don't want you to necessarily be the the sole information provider for anyone who might be <laughs> yeah, yeah. supporting some someone who is autistic um 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 i'm just thinking about sort of folks in my field are are there are there reliable sort of resources folks can access to learn more about Roma culture, especially when they're kind of working in like mental health or working with disabilities so they can just get a little, you know, get a little sort of, you know, sort of primer before they go in and meet a family yeah. and sort of know kind of what <laughs> questions to ask and so on and so forth. Yeah, you know, I wish I wish there was a singular mm. a singular source I could give mm. everyone. And yeah. I've thought about I thought about creating one for the longest time yeah. or finding like a collaboration to get as many aroma people together as possible that are disabled or neurodivergent mm. or what other labels they use. I have would have loved to create some sort of network for that for sure. Mm. But I think, you know, the best thing you can do is diversify the people around you. Right. Try, you know, I don't want people to think, I mean, go get a black friend, get a native friend, get a real right. friend, get a Jewish yeah, yeah, friend. Yeah. But, but in a sense, yeah, you need to make sure that your natural circle, as best as you can do it, has diverse voices. Like and that. if you know you're going into a, a Roma household, there are a, there's plenty good amount of cultural norms you can Google for sure. Mm, Again, mm. Not, there's not a singular source, but there's a lot of good information out there. Yeah. For the most part, don't turn down food or drink. Mm. And for a lot of people in behavior world, I think that can be really difficult because a lot yeah. of our companies that we work under, you know, we're not supposed to. Yeah. And when I was going to be an RBT um, before I left field of ABA, when I was going to be an ABA, that was something that I first noticed on job applications. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I cannot adhere to that. I culturally mm -hmm. cannot adhere to this policy, this company policy, mm -hmm. because I know if I'm going into a Roma household and if I'm the only one in the ABA company that can speak a little bit of Romanesque, of course, they're going to come pick me when they have a, a Roma family mm -hmm. that speaks that language, you know? So it's like, I'm inherently going to get picked if they find out, if they know I'm Roma, they're inherently going to start picking me. Same way I speak Spanish. So I get picked a lot for Spanish things. And mm. so they're naturally going to pick me. 
And then when they do pick me, I'm going to have to have a really difficult conversation of I cannot follow these rules of like not taking food, not taking mm-hmm. water. Mm-hmm. You cannot do that in a Roma household. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is so offensive and rude. <laughs> so yeah, I guess my answer is try to try to just talk to other Roma people as many yeah. as you can. Yeah. As many different diverse voices you can get. That makes a lot of sense. It's pretty clear why you have a passion for DEI work. I, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how DEI work sort of or or how that how that how this works when you're in 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 sort of in animal work. Like yeah, what, what, so... like how, how does that even fit because you know <laughs> Yeah, I think that's another one that I never, if you would have asked me five years ago, if I would become a DI consultant, I'd be like, no, that's true. <laughs> we have to make a separate field to teach people how to not be racist, like really. Yeah, yeah. But that was something that I just sort of got pushed into again, because mm. people knew my background, had some really difficult conversations they wanted to have with someone in a safe space. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of I got a lot of conversations in animal world and behavior analysis world when I was in both simultaneously. I was getting the same conversations, even though they were vastly different fields. So zoology mm. is vastly different from ABA. But mm. even though they were two different fields, I was getting the same singular question of, hey, Mel, is blah, blah, blah racist? Is this racist to say? <laughs> gypsy cab is gypsy cab a racist term? you know like i was getting a lot of those same questions from two vastly different academic studies right wow. and i'm like what is happening here and that's sort of how i ended up being a di consultant was not by choice but kind of out of necessity i sort of had to i was doing all this unpaid emotional labor for all these people And then when a lot of the black community, especially here in Turtle Island, started saying, you know, pay us for our work, pay us for our labor, I didn't realize how much free labor I was giving out, right? Mm. So, and I'm like, dang, yeah, I hate capitalism. I'm an anti-capitalist, but I also can't afford groceries this week. And I've done all this unpaid consulting, (laughs) you know? So I'm like, so I had to figure out a way and it's it's not profitable. And as you're, you're probably aware, a lot of the legislation now that's trying to be passed to make DI consulting completely illegal in the United States, mm-hmm. it's not good. It's not a good outlook for our, our field, but I'm at least able to try to leverage a little bit so I can make sure that I'm eating each week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and how does that work fit into your animal work like yes sorry forgot about that part of the question so so yeah again i was in dog training in Mm. animal behavior and veterinary medicine different fields same questions all these different fields same questions vet med it was like why am i someone who is you know i'm not hispanic i'm not latino why am I the only Spanish speaker in this space? <laughs> a lot of times that happened to me at different vet clinics and different veterinary facilities. I was the only one who spoke Spanish. And I'm like, Spanish should be our second national language here in the United States. Yep. There are so many Spanish speakers. How does no one else speak Spanish? Why is me the you know white looking Roma person, the one having to be the Spanish translator? It yep. always felt weird to me. It felt yeah. wrong. It was like, yeah. Why am I, when I know someone who is a native Spanish speaker, 
that would be better for this role. But where are they? They're not in vet med. Oh, because Hispanic and Latin presence in vet med is so minuscule. Mm. And I'm like, why is that? Why is vet med 93% white? <laughs> like, why? Mm. And mm. that's a very old statistic now. It, it's yeah. changed. I think it's in the 80s now. But for the longest time there, vet med on a global scale was over 90% white. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, DEI concerns <laughs> that yeah. could be addressed by a DEI consultant. <laughs> Is either is, is there such a thing as sort of you know kind of, we talk a lot about culturally affirming, culturally responsive work in, in a lot of these yeah. different fields. Is there such a thing as sort of culturally responsive work when you're working with animals? I would say so, because you know, you'll see a lot of arguments um between do we call it animal welfare? Because the mm -hmm. term welfare is, has a, a very negative connotation. Sure. Do we call it animal care, animal husbandry? Well, animal husbandry is technically not the same as animal care. Like they're, you know, they're like there's a lot of different talk. We call it animal welfare. Do we call them pets? Do we call ourselves pet owners? Mm -hmm. That ownership feels gross. Yeah. We call ourselves pet guardians. Some people want pet parents. Some people do not want pet parents. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is one that is really divisive. Um, but like, so there's all these different terms and all these different arguments each way, each direction. Yeah, yeah. And for me, a lot of that has to do with culture, because in my family, and again, I can't tell you specifically if this is Roma, Native or Jewish, but just mm -hmm. in my family in general, for my sure. big old multicultural family, our animals are our kin they are our, they are our family that's our relatives you know mm. like and we see plants in my family as ancestors that have passed because a lot of times when someone would pass away in my family my mom's rose bush would bloom and she's like oh that's your grandma saying hi you know <laughs> little wow. things like that that's so awesome. like for me there isn't that dichotomy i always make the joke because i do a lot of talks on human animal bond and human mm. animal interactions and I'm like, you you realize that term, human hyphen animal, that term is not culturally responsive. It's not yeah. culturally affirming. It's not culturally nice. If you just want to say nice, you know, that's not a nice term for me. But I'm expected to use it to be able mm -hmm. to continue my studies, to do what I will love doing. So I always make that joke of that term, that label right there. That label alone is not culturally affirming for me. Because of the sort of implied superiority, is that the hierarchy? Yeah, the implied hierarchy. Right, right. For me, because there's the, no difference. Because of course, if you do take any sort of basic, you know, animal mammals are mammals, yeah. Mam animals, <laughs> humans yep. are animals. We're all animals. Exactly, so, exactly. You know, it'd be like saying, you know, the you know, the sharks versus the animals, or the. Yeah. lions versus the animals yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i use like non-human a lot and mm. my my dad actually kind of got on to me about that he was like that's that's the same thing and i'm like no it's not mm. human animal is a complete separate dichotomy it creates a hierarchy between us humans and, and the non-humans he's like but human and non-human creates the same hierarchy and i'm like oh wow <laughs> okay you got me there you know <laughs> you're right so it's tricky it's hard there's a lot of people that are from you know marginalized backgrounds that are having to code switch and having to talk in two different ways <laughs> just for us to exist 
because we love the fields we're in. You know, Mm -hmm. I love human animal bond research. I love that stuff. Mm. But technically, if you get that, if you break it down, it's technically not culturally affirming for me a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. And so what does that work look like then for you? I mean, obviously, you've got those those awarenesses, but when you're working with, you know, say, well, maybe before we get into that, what what are what is what is the work you do at Ludar? So uh, Ludar Animal Behavior, we've been calling it Lab for sure. Yeah. Short. Um, we do we do animal behavior consultations. So a lot of that is from vet med. So veterinarians mm. that we collaborate with that we partner with will have a behavior case. Say, mm. for example, the most common one we get is a cat peeing inside the home. Yes. So they've ruled out all the medical stuff. They've done the year analysis. They've done urine culture. They've done medications. They've done food trials. They've done everything they possibly can medically. Nothing wrong with the cat. Cat is still peeing in the home constantly. Mm-hmm. And now we're at the point of these people wanting to, you know, either euthanize or surrender. Mm. They tried surrendering. None of the local shelters take cats, <laughs> which mm. is very common in our country. Unfortunately, yes. there are not a lot of supports for cats. So that's sort of how we got started in animal behavior there is mitigating those conflicts, showing people that your cat is peeing in the house, not because of one singular thing, but because a multitude of different things that are going Mm. on, which boiling it down, oversimplifying it here, your cat's not happy, right? Right. (laughs) We can, depending on the perspective you take when it comes to animal behavior, you know, if you take a hard science approach, your cat's needs aren't being met <laughs> or what have you the language changes of course based on your perspective but yeah so that's how we really got started there is seeing a lot of those conflicts and it was really frustrating because I always saw so many cats being surrendered or euthanized I'm like why this is so preventable <laughs> this is so easy to prevent it's it's not difficult stuff if you just understand basic feline behavior if you understand the ethology it's not difficult to understand why your cat is marking a food box, a litter box, a water dish. Your cat is marking resources. <laughs> your cat is mar- marking the basic resources it needs to survive because it's uncomfortable. Whatever, mm. however you mm. define uncomfortable, mm. <laughs> varies, of course. Is it uncomfortable because it doesn't like this person? Is it uncomfortable because it doesn't like the dog? You know, it, d- it d- depends. But your cat's uncomfortable, right? And so just like stripping it away down to the basic ethology. I'm like, this is very obvious. Your cat's peeing on your bed because that's where you sleep. (laughs) That's what smells like you, you know? (laughs) So that's sort of how we got started there. And then the DEI consulting stuff, that sort of, and decolonial training, because, you know, decolonization is not DEI, vice versa. But Mm -hmm. that stuff sort of came out of necessity, especially during the pandemic. We weren't getting behavior cases. Still to this day, you know, there are so many people struggling to survive right now that they can't afford behavior services for their mm, animals. It's mm. not even on their radar. There's a lot of people that had to surrender their animals. So so we're not seeing a lot of behavior cases right now. And we're not seeing a lot of dog training per se either. So we sort of went into the consulting aspect to helping businesses out of a necessity and out of noticing we were all sort of doing it unpaid volunteer mm. as is. So that DEI work isn't necessarily about It keeps our animals, lights on. But it isn't necessarily animal folk. The third secret word is India. Focused. It's you're you're just Yeah, you're, it's not necessarily about animals, but um 
we focus, we're one of the few DI consultants. I, I try to be very careful saying first and only. So mm. I'll say we are one of the few. If you find another one, please send them my email and beg mm -hmm. them to contact me because I would love to have a network set up. Mm -hmm. But we are one of the few that do DI consulting for animal related industries and fields. So a lot of times people that are DI consultants, this is no fault of their own, but they're DI consultants because they come from like finance or marketing or PR yep. or what have you. Yep. They don't understand how vet med operates. They don't right. understand that there's a lot of stuff within veterinary medicine. And I use it as an example a lot. Sorry, not trying to pick on vet med, but it's the easier example. There's a lot of things in vet med that we can't control. For example, mm. how we euthanize animals. There is a very specific way to do it that is the most humane way, but injecting an animal with something is not going to be culturally appropriate for a lot of people's cultures. Mm. Cremating animals. Cremation is a big no-no for a lot of cultures. Mm. And yet, if your pet were to pass away, it would be very rare. It's not impossible, but it is difficult to find a vet that will give you the body back. <laughs> it yeah. can be done. Yeah. But cremation is definitely the, the main thing that vet med prefers for people to do. Right. But even just mentioning that, and if you're not aware of the culture of the person you're with, the family you're working with, and you mentioned cremation, like you could really do some serious harm on top of an already traumatic event. You know, they're already there euthanizing their animal, and then you're adding to the trauma without even realizing it. If you're mentioning things like cremation to someone who does not do cremation. So there's a lot of stuff like that, that unfortunately for vet med, because this, these are the best practices, we cannot avoid, we cannot stop doing, we cannot change. And I noticed some DI consultants that would come into the vet clinics I was working for, for behavior stuff, they would come in and none of the DI advice they were giving was feasible. It wasn't practical right. yeah. for the vet clinic. <laughs> like there was one example of how they wanted us to have a dedicated room just for, you know, euthanasia, difficult conversations. Sure. And I'm like, we don't even have the space for that. And then also the, what they want in the room, you know, blankets, different lighting, different fabrics and materials, make it very comfortable, candles and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, so none of that is stuff we can clean properly. We can't sanitize that stuff. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to sanitize <laughs> because of, you know, fleas, diseases. <laughs> like, so we can't use any of those items because we can't bleach this really nice fleece blanket and we need to be able to bleach it. <laughs> so I was noticing a lot of like, I know that's like a weird example, but a lot of advice that was being given that yeah. did not work for vet med at all. It did yeah. not work for a lot of animal fields. Well, I think that speaks to the larger sort of, maybe this is a problem in general with sort of the DEI consultant. I mean, our company recently went through a, you know, a, a consultation with a DEI group and, you know, we've got some good things out of it, but, yeah, you know, at the same time, were they versed in the kind of work we were doing and in the populations we focused on and so on and so forth? Um, I, I think some of them were a little bit and that was helpful, but I, I would mm -hmm. guess that a lot of the time, if this is probably the case where DEI consultants come in and don't know anything about the industry they're consulting in yeah. and yeah. Uh, are just sort of providing sort of general kind of, you know, bits of advice, some of which I think is probably yep. helpful, but, you know. Yeah, it never does any harm, but it also doesn't 
you know, we're, we are, we are in a capitalist society right now, as mm. much as I hate capitalism and I hope we get out of it soon, but it's not a bang for your buck at all. You know, it's not the most wise use of funds if they can't really know the inside out of your industry. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of your, uh, your, your goals for the future here? What, 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 what do you got? What do you got coming up? So lab right now, we are completely merging from, it started with just me and my sister, Delilah. Mm. And it started with just animal behavior consults, dog training, stuff like that. So us turning into like a full-on consulting agency um, is still a process. And for lab, we are a cooperative. So Mm. we have, oh, I should know this off the top of my head. Um, we have about 12 members of our co-op right now, right. and they're they're all marginalized or historically oppressed because they all have different labels they prefer to use. Um, they don't all use my terminology. Mm. Uh, so historically oppressed, marginalized, what have you, minority, whatever label you want in some way. So and some of them are, you know, certain ethnicities, certain races, certain I- gender identities. Uh, we have a lot of just poor folks, a lot of people that just grew up in immense poverty. You know, so I notice when it comes to being an entrepreneur that a lot of the times in mainstream Roma culture today, becoming an entrepreneur is seen as a really great thing, but it's very difficult. It's so hard. And Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't cut it. I Mm. had to get help from, you know, people like Delilah and other people in my family and friends to even learn like how do I file how do I make an LLC do I need an mm. LLC what is an LLC right. <laughs> like, what is all these things right and and if I someone who has access someone who went to university someone who has access to a lot of resources who you know is really good at English I have all these privileges if me someone with all these privileges is still struggling what is happening with someone who has less access to these resources than mm. I so mm. I was like we gotta become a co-op we got to bring back the cooperatives <laughs> like unions and co-ops are the best protection for workers. That is mm, the mm. they have to live in capitalism. Unions and our cooperatives are the best way to give workers the most autonomy and as many rights as we can give them while we're working under capitalism. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> so if we're stuck under this, this is the one most affirming thing we can do is have a union or co-op. And yeah. so that's why we've been forming a cooperative. So that's that's our focus right now is really building our cooperative, getting our online courses, getting more on-demand stuff that's affordable, that's accessible. Right. Um, and by accessible, I mean, we want to make sure we have sign language interpreters, different languages, stuff like that. Uh, for me personally, the goal is medical school. I oh, wow. went to medical school, so. <laughs> uh, like human medical school or? Human medical school, yep. That's <laughs> just so funny. But yeah, human medical school. So I want to focus on psychiatry, um, mm. but but uh, neuropsychiatry. Yeah. And I want to incorporate, of course, neurodecolonization into the field of psychiatry. Oh, that sounds like a like a great a great goal that's awesome um if folks wanted to get a hold of you reach out what would be the best way to find you lab is definitely the best way mm. uh, our email we always say like there's no wrong question there's <laughs> nothing our email is completely confidential several mm. people do check our our lab email but mm. 
I I tell people you want that. You want to know that people are giving their different perspectives, but everyone is going to keep it confidential. Sometimes people don't feel comfortable reaching out to lab because we, you know, we are a co-op. So that does mean there's gonna be multiple people looking at your email. Yeah, but yeah. if you want to email just me, they can use my academic email. That's mm. fine. Uh, but don't be surprised if they ask something and I'm like, you, I, we need to forward this over to lab. We need to have everyone in our co-op see this <laughs> because I try to remind people that none of us are alone. None of us get through this life alone. Mm -hmm. We all are inherently a collective community. And so like, it's not just me, you know, it's not just me at lab. It's, mm -hmm. it's really important to really focus on collectivism for me. Awesome. But lab email is the best way. But if for some reason you don't feel comfortable, you can use my academic email. <laughs> Perfect. Super awesome having you on the podcast, Mel. I learned so much today. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me.